I'm going to try to hit my mic and cut off my cough, my cough, my mic before I cough, but, you know, we'll see. Everybody's sick. We need to be praying. Everybody get better. Gosh, like everyone is sick. So, anyway, uh, we're taking a quick pause on our Daniel series uh, as we head into Advent, and we're going to do five weeks of Advent through the end of the year, and then we'll pick Daniel back up in the first of the year. So we're starting a little Christmas series, Advent series called Behold. Uh, I'm excited to jump into it. My favorite Christmas movie, without a doubt, um, is The Grinch. And particularly the Jim Carrey version of The Grinch, the live action version. Uh, You all know the story of The Grinch. He goes uh, from someone who doesn't just hate Christmas He loathes it. It's awful because of all the fuss about the toys and the gifts and the spending too much on on decorations and toys all the while, not caring about anything else that actually matters. But at the end of the movie, his heart is stirred and grows three sizes by the actions of a little girl who cared more about him than the fact that she had lost all of her toys on Christmas. And then he hears the Who's singing instead of crying As he expected them, as he stole their Christmas, he hears them singing. And in that moment, he's changed. And there's a line that is said, and it quotes from the book. And the Grinch says, or the the narrator says, And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler, puzzler was sore. Maybe he thought Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas means a little bit more. And that is the question that I want to examine over the next five weeks. If Christmas isn't about all of the hustle and bustle, if it's not about the gifts and the plays and the food and the jolly good times we have, what is it about? We all know the answer. We know the answer is Jesus, but we need to take a step further. I'm calling this series Behold because the word behold means to stop. To stop and gaze, to stop and wonder, to stand still and to take in the scene and to examine, to behold something, to stop and really take it in. And so in the midst of all of the busyness that this season brings in our lives, I want us to be careful that we don't fly through Christmas without reflecting on what truly makes this time of year so special. So as we gather together each week, we're going to zoom in on different aspects of the Christmas story to see behind the curtain, so to speak, to know what is really going on with this baby in a manger. Why is it so important? Why is history itself measured by this singular event? I want us to see it more biblical and more theological and not just the way we see it in all the TV shows and movies. In short, we are simply going to behold the Savior this morning. We're going to slow down and gaze upon all that He is. That's our goal today, to slow down and behold Jesus. So today, if we're going to understand the manger in Bethlehem, We have to start at the beginning. We have to see that this baby is no accident. That this scene that Darcy just talked about with the kids is no last-ditch effort. It is not the, the plan B. It's not the last-ditch effort. Instead, 
this moment, this scene, this act in history was planned before the foundation of the world. And that all of history and every moment has been leading up to this moment. And it is all foretold. As a kid, waiting on Christmas to come always seemed like an eternity, right? It always seemed like it would never get here. The, the days and the hours and the minutes ticked by so slowly and it was like Christmas would never come. And in the same way, all of history, all of God's people, even the creation itself, even the rocks themselves were longing and waiting with every hint, every prophecy, every shadow, every nudge of his coming. The excitement grew, the anticipation grew, and they couldn't wait for this moment to get here. And so before we can understand the baby and a manger, we have to understand what was promised about him. And why the world was so desperate for him to come. And so to do that, we have to turn back. We have to see the entire Old Testament is not a, uh, uh, this whole first three quarters of this book is not a whole bunch of rules uh, and random stories, but rather is one cohesive point, cohesive thing pointing to the coming of this child, this baby. I do not have time to show you every way in which the Old Testament foretells this coming. We'd be here for a long time. But I'm going to simply point out the big ones to you. So from the outset, the first thing I want you to understand is this. The entire Old Testament foretells and longs for the coming of the Messiah. The entire Old Testament foretells and longs for the coming of the Messiah. Not just the prophecies and not just the big obvious stories, but every story somehow foreshadows and tells or shows the need for or illuminates the coming of Jesus the Messiah. If you read the Old Testament and you do not have Jesus as the climax, you have missed the point. So now let's travel back in time, a few thousand years of history, and see what was foretold, what was promised about this baby born in a manger. But first, Eden Pearl. Will you bring me that water? Oh, yeah, get all your accoutrements together. Come on, throw me the water. Throw it. That's What an arm, man. I'll tell you, train up a child the way they should go. Come on. <laughs> all right. Number one, he would be the snake crusher. He would be the snake crusher. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where everything is perfect and beautiful and great and everything's right in the world. And what happens in chapter 3? But a snake enters the scene. He enters the garden and he begins to tempt Adam and Eve to do that which God commanded them not to do. And when they give in to that temptation, everything falls apart and a curse comes over all of the world. A curse of death. A curse that breaks everything. Every thing is now broken. But there's a promise. There's a promise that God, God gives all the curses and then he makes a promise to Adam and Eve. And he tells them in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, it is often called the Evangelion, which means the first gospel, this promise of God that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He promises to Eve that you're going to have a son, that you're going to have a son who will have a son who will have a son who will one day be hurt by the snake. 
But even though he's hurt by the snake, in the end, he will crush his head. He will crush his head. You see, this serpent, in some ways, is the personification of evil. We know he's the devil, but he personifies all of evil and the brokenness in the world. This treacherous snake who, with his temptation, set off a bomb that has destroyed the world. This snake is going to get what is coming to him. The first promise of the Bible is that Eve's son would one day come and do battle with this ancient serpent. And though the serpent would strike the first blow, in the end he would defeat him by crushing his head once and for all. This first promise is that the Messiah would be a snake crusher who would destroy evil, death, and all that is broken in the world forever. And so what we find in that little manger in Bethlehem is not just a sweet little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Instead, we find an ancient warrior who, who comes with the very purpose to crush the head of our great enemy, this ancient serpent, through which his death and his resurrection, he does just that. Number two, he would be the seed of Abraham. He would be the seed of Abraham. After we learn that the Messiah would be the seed of Eve, the child of Eve, you can trace that seed through all those, remember those chapters in the Bible that are genealogies that you just skip over in your Bible reading plans because, you, you know, they begot him, who begot him, who begot him, and you just skip over. Those are important because you're tracing the seed. And you can trace the seed from Eve to Seth and to Noah and then to Abraham. And so we follow the, the, we follow the line down to Abraham, and in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham something new about this seed, something new about this child. Not only is he going to crush the head of the serpent, but he is going to bless all nations on the earth. That through the seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But he's not just going to bless the Israelites. He's not going to just bless this one particular nation. He's going to bless every tribe, tongue, and nation. And not only would he bless all nations of the earth, but Abraham would have tons of offspring, tons of children and descendants. They would be more than the stars are in the sky. And so what do we find in the manger in Bethlehem? We find one who comes not to just save the nation of Israel, but one who comes to save shepherds and priests and wise men far from the east. He comes to save the lowly and the hurting. He comes to save the Jew and the Gentile. He comes to save white and black and every color in between. He comes for all people. And how is it that Abraham has so many descendants, more than the stars in the sky? It is not because there are a lot of Jewish people in the world. It is because there are a lot of people who have been brought into the spiritual family of Abraham. And how are they brought into the spiritual family of Abraham? Through the child promised Abraham, who is not Isaac. But Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16, was Christ, the true seed of Abraham. And as they've been adopted into his family, spiritual children of Abraham, he has many descendants. Number three, he would be the true Passover lamb. He would be the true Passover lamb. Fast forward a few hundred years. God's people are slaves in Egypt. And God sends his prophet Moses to command Pharaoh to let his people go. 
And again and again, Moses commands Pharaoh to let his people go. And again and again, the Pharaoh refuses. And with each refusal comes another plague that hurts not only the king of Egypt, but all of his people as well. And so the water turns to blood. The sun fails to give its light. Everyone gets boils. Locusts swarm and on and on and on. But the tenth plague, the tenth plague is the one that does him in, the plague of the death of the firstborn. And that night, the angel of death was going to come through all of Egypt and kill every firstborn son of every family. But God, through Moses, tells his people that there is a way that their sons can be spared. That there is a way that their sons will not be judged by the angel of death and die. And if they were to sacrifice a lamb and to smear its blood across their door, if they do that, when the angel of death comes, he will see the blood and pass over their house, sparing the firstborn. The next morning, you could hear the wailing cries of mothers and fathers throughout Egypt as they grieved the death of their sons. But the cries only came from parts of the city because the houses with the blood received mercy and were spared. And there was no crying that morning. Not only did this cause the Pharaoh to finally let the Israelites go, but it taught the Israelites an important truth. That the wages of sin is death, but judgment can be averted. If the blood of a pure lamb covers you, then judgment and death will pass over. For the next thousand years or so, Israel would sacrifice millions of animals, making atonement again and again and again for their sin. The streets of Israel ran red with blood as they attempted to appease the righteous justice of God who took aim at their sin. But the pa- that Passover lamb and every other sacrifice, the Bible tells us, actually never forgave their sins at all. They simply pointed forward to the only lamb who could forgive their sins. I wonder if you ever remember the first sacrifice in the Bible. Who made the first sacrifice in the Bible? You might be tempted to think, oh, maybe Adam or his children, Abel or Cain. But that's not right. The first sacrifice in the Bible was made by God. Because when Adam and Eve sinned and were ashamed, they hid themselves and covered themselves with fig leaves. As if that fig leaves could cover their sin. God says, no, no, no. I'll cover you. And he covers them with animal skins that he had to kill in order to cover them. God makes the first sacrifice showing them that I both demand sacrifice and atonement for sin and will provide it for you. And what a foreshadow that he would do the same thing again. Do you remember the moment when Jesus crests the hill as he walks down toward the the river Jordan and his cousin John the Baptist is down there baptizing people when John looks up and he sees them, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Every lamb that was slain for all of those thousands of years 
pointed to the only lamb that could ever remove sin. That little baby in the manger was, is our true Passover lamb. He is the true sacrifice that we've all longed for. He is the only pure lamb who had no faults, whose blood could truly make judgment and death pass over all of us, everyone who claims it. See, like the Israelites in Egypt who put the blood of the lamb on their doors and found that they were passed over, so too when we claim the blood of Christ over our lives, death and hell and judgment have no claim on us. Do you remember a, a month or so ago when these uh, two, two kids, uh, or they didn't break in, but they went into the National Gallery in London and they opened a can of tomato soup and they walked up to Van Gogh's painting, Sunflowers, which is worth around $72 million or so, and they threw the soup onto the painting. And then they pulled out some glue and stuck themselves to the wall, protesting oil and usage and climate change and things like that. Social media went crazy as people were so mad as they destroyed this masterpiece. They hurled their soup on it and destroyed this priceless piece of history, this beautiful painting. People were furious. The National Gallery came out with a statement later that day saying that there was some minor damage to the frame, but that the painting was unharmed. You see, they prepared for things like this. The painting had this very thin piece of glass over it, almost imperceivable to the human eye. It was so thin that their tomato soup couldn't hurt it. You see, our great enemy, hurls accusations against us again and again and again. He yells at us that we're guilty, that we're frauds, that we're hypocrites, that we're addicts, and that we're failures, and that we have all of these faults, and that we're unlovable and unredeemable, and death and judgment and hell are coming for us. But those accusations that come for all of us, of the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross, our great Passover lamb, Satan. His greatest threats are like tomato soup that just bounce off. Because his blood covers us, no accusation can stick. His attacks amount to nothing more than soup bouncing off glass. By the blood of Christ, they never reach their target. And so that little baby in the manger is our Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world and he takes away all of the accusation and condemnation of our great enemy and they can't touch us. Because when we claim the blood of Christ, death itself and judgment pass over. There's more in this same story. Jesus is not just the lamb, but he would also bring a second exodus. He would bring a second exodus. The people of God were slaves in Egypt. And when God demonstrated his power over Pharaoh, he rescued his people from the chains of slavery. And every year, the Israelites would get together and they would celebrate and they would remember this great victory, this great uh, deliverance from slavery. But God wanted them to celebrate and remember this exodus because it was a shadow of the real one. This exodus was but a shadow pointing us to the real thing, the real exodus that was coming and that we needed. You see, the true problem 
that they had and that we have was never physical slavery. Our deeper, real, true problem was that we might be free in this world, but we were slaves to sin. While there might be shackles on our wrists, there have always been shackles on our minds, hearts, and wills. We are not, this is an important statement, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We didn't sin one day and we became sinners. Rather, we sin for the very reason because we are in our very bones sinners. We are born this way, born with this brokenness in us. We are all shackled by sin. We crave the passions of the flesh. We believe that they will satisfy us. And so we return again and again to our lust and our greed and our gluttony and our envy and our pride. And again, thinking that they will make us satisfied. They'll make us strong and happy. And no matter how often they fail us, we, like a dog returning to its vomit, return to our sin. Because sin from birth has been our master. And we obey its commands. Many of us in this room have been controlled by sin at different points in our life. Whether it's we've been controlled by our lusts or our greed or our gluttony or our pride. Many of us have been addicted and enslaved to those things. And many others have been addicted to to the expressions of those things through alcohol, through drugs, through gambling, through food. Both in overindulgence or through through eating disorders. Sin gets its claws in all of us and doesn't let go. The baby in a manger, he comes as a chain breaker. He comes to break the chains of the slavery that has kept us in bondage our whole life. He comes to lead a revolution, a revolt against our slave master. He comes to set us free from the lie and our bondage that our sin will make us happy and it will deliver us and save us. And so as we gather to behold a Savior. We gather to see a Savior who breaks our chains and sets us free from captivity, from our addictions. When we come to Christ, we do not just receive forgiveness from sin. We receive freedom from slavery. He breaks the chains of sin that so tightly wound our hearts. He breaks those chains so that we can finally be free of it. And live in the way that God has always longed for us to and find true joy. Number five. He would be the true and final king from the line of David. He would be the true and final king from the line of David. When the prophet Samuel went to Jesse's house to find the new king, And to anoint the new king of Israel. He just naturally went to the oldest son. But God said it wasn't him. And so he went to the next one. Thinking, well, it's not the oldest. He must have done something wrong. I guess it's the next one. But it wasn't him either. And he goes down the list of all the boys in the house. And it was none of them. It was none of them. It wasn't the next one. It wasn't the next one. It was someone so unlikely. And so unthinkable. That the dad, Jesse, did not even call for little David to come up out of the field to the house to see the prophet because no one thought it would be him. But that's exactly who God picked, the unlikely king. David wasn't just an unlikely king. He was a king who was a man after God's own heart who captured the hearts of the people. 
This is, this is first seen when David faced Goliath, right? And all of Israel is up on this mountain, and they're too scared to fight for themselves. The, even King Saul at the time, he's too scared to fight. And so uh, Goliath is down there yelling these insults. And remember what he's wearing? Snake skin armor. That's important. Serpent. He's the enemy of God. And all of Israel's too scared to go fight this true enemy of God. But David, this little ruddy boy, says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And he doesn't wear armor, and he goes down there with a slingshot, and he knocks Goliath out. And then he goes and he takes Goliath's sword off of him. And what does he do? He crushes his head. And that victory is given to all of the people of Israel as if they did it themselves, one-on-one combat, winner take all. And so now this victory is given to all of Israel, and now they've got courage. What do they do? They run down the hill and they chase the other army away. David gave them courage. And then God makes a promise. God makes a promise that a king in David's line would sit on the throne forever. And he kept that promise when he sent this little baby in a manger. You see, Jesus, like David, was an unlikely king. Born in a barn where there were no one, no one there to greet him except some dirty, stinky shepherds. No party, no celebration. He was a nobody. He was from Nazareth, and as we know, nothing good comes from Nazareth. But like David. He was unlikely king, but he also captured the hearts of the people through his victory that he achieves for us. You see, on the cross, he is greater than David. He doesn't win despite his weakness like David goes in weakness. He wins because of his weakness. He doesn't risk his life to fight our great enemy. He gives his life to fight our great enemy. And just like David cut off Goliath's head in that victory given to Israel, so too Jesus crushes the head of that ancient serpent and his victory is given to us. Does the victory of Christ, the work of Christ, the love of Christ as our king not capture our hearts too? Is it not his love that compels us to change, to live for him, to change our allegiance away from our kingdoms to his kingdom? See, there is a reason that we love the old tales of the great kings who do great things. There is a reason we love the myths of King Arthur and so many others. It is because we were made to be ruled. We were made to behold and be captivated by a great king, to love a great king, to serve a great king, to be saved and rescued by a great king, and to be brought into the family of a great king. And in Jesus, we have done all of that. Finally, number six, he would be the very word of God. He would be the very word of God. You know, for thousands of years, Ryan read it from Hebrews at the start of the service, that God has spoken in many times in many ways through the prophets, but now he has spoken in his son. For thousands of years, people heard from God through prophets, through someone else. They came and went speaking on God's behalf. They heard what they should do. They heard what they shouldn't do. They heard about God's love. They heard all sorts of things about God and from God through someone else. And after a while, that gets kind of old. Trying to have a relationship with somebody through somebody else gets kind of old. It's like when you're a kid. Remember when you got mad at your friend? You said, I'm not talking to you anymore. And what would you do? You would talk to your friend through your other friend. Well, you tell them, I said, when they do this, then I'll start talking to them again. 
oh, yeah, well, you tell them that I said, right? And, you, and that gets old after a while. Or imagine having a relationship with your spouse through someone else. If you couldn't talk to them personally, you had to talk with them through somebody else and never had direct access to them. That would get old. But that's what it was like. That's what it's like to only hear from God through someone else. And then not only that, but after the prophet Malachi comes, there are 400 years of silence. 400 years where no prophets come and there's no words from God. Just silence. But do you remember what John calls that little baby in a manger? He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, Jesus is the very word of God. He is not just a mouthpiece of God. He is literally the mouth of God. He is fully God, come to be with his people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He did not leave us for, for, forever to hear from someone else speaking on his behalf. He comes to show us himself personally because he wants to be near us, he wants to speak with us, and he wants to be known by us personally. Behold a God who cares enough for the likes of us that he doesn't just send emissaries on his behalf but rather he comes himself to be with us. Behold our God in a manger, our God made flesh. Behold the snake crusher. Behold the one who crushed our great enemy. Behold the seed of Abraham who has blessed all the nations. Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the one who brings the second exodus and frees us from our true slavery. Behold our king who captures our hearts by his radical love for us. Behold the word made flesh come to dwell with men. I hope you are beginning to see that the whole Bible is one big story groaning and longing for this Jesus to finally arrive. I've given you but a small picture of the promises that will be fulfilled. And time would prevent me from telling you about how Jesus was foretold in so many other ways. Like in Jonah, how Jesus is the true and better Jonah who doesn't flee from that wicked city but rather goes to save it. Or how Jesus is the true and better Hosea who though his bride was a harlot and unfaithful, he goes to buy her back with the price of his own life. Or how Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is betrayed by his own, but then sits at the right hand of the king, whereby he saves us from certain death, even though we betrayed him. Or how even the rock in the wilderness points to him. The rock that Moses struck with his rod, or when he struck it, water spewed forth. Even the Bible tells us that the rock is Christ, that Jesus, the true and better rock that was struck with the rod of God's justice, spews out water that when we drink it, we'll never thirst again. Behold your God. Behold him in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes and remember that his coming wasn't plan B. It wasn't a last-ditch effort. It wasn't random. It was the plan from the beginning of time and all of creation has been leading to this singular moment. When God became man and dwelt among us, to come and save the world and make a forever home in him. The Old Testament is one big giant promise with a lot of footnotes. And God has kept every single one of those promises in Jesus. This Christmas, in the midst of all the hustle and bustle, let us not forget to slow down and behold. Slow down and behold him and who he is and what he's done. Guys, let us, with our families, get together in the living room. Let us read the stories. Let us stop and wonder and delight and stand in awe of what was promised, how it was fulfilled, who he is, what he did, how he loves you. 
do not let this season go by and miss it. Because Christmas is more wondrous and more magical than we know. And we only see the magic when we behold Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for this season and this time of year that forces us to to look at your son. Father, help us to slow down and to not miss all the things that are reminding us of who he is and what he's done and what he means to us and for us and what he's done for us. Father, if there's anybody in this room right now who hasn't placed their faith and trust in you, who doesn't belong to your kingdom or to your family, would you give them the courage this morning as we sing this last song to come up and talk with me and we can talk about what it means to follow Jesus. There's anybody here this morning who is just struggling, just needs some prayer, just needs to talk, needs to pray for something. Lord, I'd love, guys, I'd love to pray with you. Father, give them the courage to come this morning. Or maybe you just need to sing this song. Not be worried about lunch or the football game that's getting ready to come, but be worried about singing these words, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Would you stand still? Remove the distractions from your mind. Look up at him and behold him. Marvel at him. Wonder at him. And let him change your life. God, we thank you so much. In Christ's name we pray, all those people said, let's stand together.